looking at a lengthy passage this morning, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to read portions of, of this, starting in verse 15. Please give attention to the Lord's Word through the pen of Luke in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. And at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was accounted among us and received his portion in this ministry. And picking up in verse 20, For it is written in the book of the Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let us pray. Father, again, we come before you through your word, seeking the guidance of your Holy Spirit, as was promised that he would guide us into all truth. We also pray that he would preserve us from any error. We ask that you would bless this time in your word to the edification of our body, to the improvement of our souls and our understanding of our God and of the great salvation that he has wrought on our behalf. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. And at that time, Peter stood up and said, of course he did. There were 120 people in the room. It didn't really matter if there were 1,200 people in the room. If Peter was in the room, who would stand up and start the conversation? Peter. This is what we have learned about Peter in the Gospels, that he was uh, somewhat the mouthpiece. Sometime he was the foot and mouthpiece, but he was the one who did most of the talking for the disciples. Now, of course, in what he has to say in the rest of the chapter, we have what seems to be a very innocuous passage of the early church electing a man to fill the place that was occupied by Judas Iscariot. But this seemingly innocent passage is full of danger for the church and has been in the church. And it also serves as an example for the, for the whole book of Acts, and that is how much of what we read is history and how much is polity. Now, history is what the early church did, Polity is what the church of all ages is to do. And there hasn't been agreement in the church as to the division of the book of Acts 
as to what constitutes history, simply telling us what they did, and what constitutes polity, and that is what we ought to be doing too. For example, Peter, was he the first pope or not? I mean, really. Peter is the one who, who stood up. Was he the first Pope Matthias? Was he the twelfth apostle? I'm sure if you've read this passage before, you've asked yourself the question, was this right? Because you had in your own mind, as the church has had for 2,000 years, who the twelfth apostle really is, and most of us wouldn't even be able to name Matthias if we were forced to name the twelve apostles. I am sure there are are one or two others that we might have trouble remembering as well. But Matthias uh, would not make the list. And how about casting lots? Can you imagine church committees <laughs> trying to decide on the color of the choir robes? Casting lots? Or maybe that's how we should choose our, our elders, is casting lots. That, that's what they did here. And they bathed it in prayer, and they accepted the judgment of the lots as being the will of the Lord. So what is history and what is polity? What do we read that they did, um, maybe because of the culture in which they lived, maybe because of the heritage that they had, but do we read what we ought to be doing as well today? What should we say about Peter? Well, time will forbid us from going into a side study on Peter, that would occupy the rest of my time in the pulpit this session and probably another session. But I will say this, that when we think about Peter, we should say not less than what the Lord himself said about Peter. And we should say not more than Peter said about himself. Let, let's give ourselves those, those boundaries as we consider Peter the one who stood up, the one who is obviously the, the leader in this group of 120 or so disciples in the upper room. Let's give ourselves the boundary of saying no less than what the Lord Jesus said of him, but no more than what he said of himself. Protestants, therefore, must stop denying that he was indeed uh, a foundation within and among the apostles. He was a first among equals, and as we read of him in the Gospels, yes, he made mistakes, but he was the one who was at the cutting edge of seeking to understand what it was the Son of Man was doing in their midst. He didn't get it, but he tried. He was the one who stepped out of the boat onto the lake. He was the one who confessed Christ as the Son of God. Yes, he was also the one who, under the spirit of, of Satan tried to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem, but he was, he was out there. His, his faith was vibrant, it was real, it was, as the Puritans would say, experiential or experimental. He, he experimented a lot, and sometimes the test tube blew up in his face, but at least he tried. And then when we go to the book of Acts, Peter is, is the, the first apostle that we read about for much of the opening chapters of Acts. He is the leader. You are Peter, Jesus said. And upon this rock I will build my church. Many Protestants have tried to twist that phrase around to make the rock to somehow become Peter's confession. But in fact, the play on words 
was on the name of Peter and the word for rock. And that's what Jesus was saying. Peter, you, on you, I will build my church. And so he also said, after Peter had denied knowing Jesus, three times Peter denied ever hearing of Jesus, but was restored through his own repentance and through the grace of God, Jesus said to Peter, and you, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. So Protestants need to stop denying that Peter was indeed first among equals. We need to stop responding to what has happened to the name of Peter in the Roman Catholic Church, where he has become traditionally the first pope. And we need to recognize that he was indeed significant. One commentator writes, Peter, as might have been expected, takes the lead on this occasion in the exercise of that representative priority with which he had for so long been invested and to which he had recently been restored. That representative priority. He was the first among the apostles. But Catholics also need to abandon the historical fiction that makes Peter the first bishop of Rome, making him the first pope. Peter wasn't infallible. We read in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, but when Cephas, who is another, that's another name that Peter took, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And we know the occasion, as Mark has, has been teaching us through Galatians, that Peter came to Antioch and while he was there, he would eat with the Gentiles until other Jews had come down from Jerusalem. And then Peter withdrew from the Gentiles fearing the party of the, of the circumcision. And Paul called him out publicly as a hypocrite. But what does Peter say about himself? Does he call himself a pope? Does he exercise that kind of authority over the rest of the apostles and over the church? No, he does not. In his first letter, in the last chapter of 1 Peter, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter was, I believe, by temperament and by calling, the spokesman and the guide for the apostles. He was by no means infallible, and he was not a pope. And nonetheless, he was a very important figure, and one that the other apostles and the other disciples look up to, and they respect it. And so I bring this out not, not to try to refute Roman Catholicism and their view. I think there's plenty of evidence to refute that. But to show, as we begin this passage, that there is the, um, there is the predisposition that what is about to happen was supposed to happen. And, and I say that because there are many who believe that Peter, in this occasion, was mistaken and he led the entire little church into an error by what he does in this passage. Now, we do not read that in the passage at all. We do not read any indication in the passage that what they are doing is not approved by God. Peter knew his scripture. He knew his scripture better than most Christians, I will assure you that. And as he is gathering together and the assembly is in prayer... 
it occurs to them that something terrible has happened. That their number of 12 apostles has been reduced by one. Now, I will point out that verses 18 and 19, some of your Bibles may actually have them in parentheses. The reason I did not read them is because Luke has provided that for Theophilus to explain to us the end of Judas Iscariot. And we'll be talking about that briefly this morning. But I want to focus on what, what Peter sees and how not only in, he interprets this event, but how he feels bound that it is to be remedied. And he turns to the Psalms. The Psalms that were recognized in his day and are recognized in ours as messianic Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. He goes to this, these passages from the pen of David and recognizes in the betrayal and in the abandonment of office what Judas Iscariot has just done. He has betrayed the son of David, and in doing so, he has abandoned and left vacant his office. Now, we'll have much occasion during our study of Acts to talk about the office of an apostle. And there are many in our day within the church who, who claim that there are still apostles. And, and I hope we can see that, that, uh, that there were different levels of apostles and what that word means. But here, we are talking of the twelve. Let's read verses 18, 17, or excuse me, 18 and 19, speaking of Judas. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakaldama, that is, the field of blood. Have you noticed that in reading the various accounts of Judas's demise, they're not all the same? Good. <laughs> Your reading comprehension grade is an A. They are not all the same. In one, he throws the 30 pieces of silver back to the priests. In another, this one, he buys for himself a field. In one, he hangs himself, and in another, he falls headlong and bursts open in the middle. These are difficult to harmonize, and I'm not going to try. Because honestly, the fate of Judas is not of major concern to either the early church or to Christianity. What is important is that he betrayed his Lord to death, he suffered remorse, but no repentance. And his end was just and miserable. And in doing so, in doing all of these things, he fulfilled the scriptures that prophesied that he would abandon a very close associate, his Lord. We talked about Judas before, and I mentioned that Judas is always portrayed in, in art regarding Jesus and the disciples as a dark-complected, sinister-looking man standing off in the shadows. Okay, I, I know, he had a scar and a crooked ear. Uh, he, he looked like the classic villain. But actually, the Psalms prophesied that he would be 
a very close friend to the one he betrayed. And I think really if we were going to go in for that, that art that somehow depicts the, the disciples and their Lord, or at least in the mind, the art of our own minds, we need to bring Judas in from the shadows. And personally, I think we ought to put him on the other side of Jesus from John so that we can understand just how horrible his betrayal was. It wasn't the, the inevitable action of one that everybody didn't trust. He was given the money bag. He was entrusted with the money. Of course, he stole from it. But he was trusted, he was loved by the Lord. We read in Psalm 109, When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his prayers become sin. In light of our Sunday school class, that's a really interesting prayer to pray for another. Let his prayers become sin. Let his prayers become an abomination in your sight. Let his days be few. Let him not enjoy the fruits of his betrayal, but rather let him die in misery. But let another take his office. This was Peter's concern. One commentator, I think, um, wisely comments that Peter is, is very reserved in how he refers to Judas. We read, if we assume that Peter is the one who's vocalizing the prayer in verses 24 and 25, we read that someone needs to come in to occupy this ministry from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. And perhaps, as this one commentator theorizes, perhaps Peter is thinking of his own betrayal of the Lord. Perhaps he's thinking, you know, that, that, that very common phrase, there but by the grace of God go I. Perhaps he's thinking, you know, Judas was no worse than me. But God had mercy on my soul. So Judas went to his own place. That is not my concern. Maybe he's remembering even what Jesus said to him when he asked about John. What, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus said to Peter, that is not your concern. You follow me. And so even in Peter's prayer, even his reticence to say anything against Judah, Judas, but rather to focus on the scriptures, Peter gives us as individual believers in our prayers Advice and guidance. What is that to you? You follow me. And so Peter's concern was the vacant spot at the table of twelve. And that that spot be fulfilled. But was he correct? And as I said, many have concluded that the early church erred in what they did here in the upper room. Here are some of the reasons that people have concluded. And, and perhaps you have as well that what, the, what they did in the upper room was wrong. First, there was no command given by the Lord for them to do this. The command that they were operating under on this day was you shall remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Another, that's another reason given for this to be a mistake. Also, 
Some have noted that Peter was habitually rash and forward. Well, that is true. They say, well, look at Peter. I mean, he, he was constantly doing stuff like this. And so that's just what he's doing again. He's just being rash. He's just being Peter. He's just being out ahead of the Lord. And then finally, of course, the classic reason, the, the common reason, is Paul. I mean, there's the, the apostolic elephant in the living room. Paul. Isn't he the twelfth apostle? Well, I do agree with what one commentator very briefly said. As the scripture must be fulfilled, this psalm is equivalent to a command. So as to the first one, that there was no command, the scriptures are a command. And when scripture is to be obeyed or fulfilled, it constitutes a command. We do not need an auditory, verbal command from the Lord to obey his word. As for Peter being habitually rash and for, forward, that is true. But that does not mean that a man is always rash and forward, or that he was always will be. Peter had been through a lot during the passion of his Lord, and he had been restored from the, the, the misery of his betrayal. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given well, that would condemn the decisions of thousands of people recorded in Scripture, many of them, for generations prior to Pentecost. And so I don't think we can say that because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out in the form that we will see, Lord willing, next week, that return of the Shekinah and God dwelling among His people in His tabernacle, I don't think we can say that because of that, Peter was necessarily wrong in what he was doing. And as for Paul, well, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Why were there 12 apostles to begin with? Why did Jesus call out 12 men to become his apostles? And as he said, knowingly calling out one of them who would betray him. He had already prophesied that before it happened. And so we know that he didn't make a mistake in choosing Judas. But today I want to ask, why did he choose 12? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And in choosing 12, and in Peter's recognizing that that vacant spot needed to be filled so that there would again be 12, Jesus was telling not only his disciples, but he was telling Israel that he was leading a new exodus. Now, there's much talk about the church as being the, the true Israel within the false Israel during this time. The remnant who came to know God through Jesus Christ being the true Israel, I think it would be better said that they were the new Israel. That they were an Israel being born again out of Israel Twelve apostles for twelve tribes. Jesus said to the apostles, or to the disciples, recorded in Luke chapter 22, He said, And you will sit on the throne, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We're told in Revelation about the gates, and about the foundations, and about the, the, uh, the lintels of the gates, and that there would be the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles. And in our minds, we've always thought that the twelfth was Paul. 
But in Peter's mind, Paul, Paul wasn't even figuring into it. And when he does finally figure into it, it's as a persecutor, as one who pursued those of the way to their imprisonment and to their death. It was Paul as Saul of Tarsus presiding over the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the book of Acts. We are again reminded here, I believe, of the Jewish heritage of Christianity. The witness of Christ and his resurrection is the purpose of the twelve. Verse 22, as Peter is, is giving the qualifications for any men who might be considered for this twelfth position, that they, might, they must have accompanied them all the time from the baptism of John until he was taken up, these, one of them, should become a witness with us of the resurrection. This was a new exodus. This was a new return from exile. This was a deliverance, as we'll learn later, especially in the writings of Paul. This was a deliverance from the bondage of sin, but the metaphor of the exodus from Egypt will continue to be used, as it was in the Old Testament prophets, so it will be among the apostles. And these men saw themselves as representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Not literally. We're not given any indication in the Gospels or in this, uh, this reiteration here in this chapter of the names of the apostles. We're given no indication what tribes each one of them came from. We, we don't know. But spiritually, in the new Israel... These apostles are the twelve tribes represented. Peter's interpretation of the Psalms was in keeping with 1,500 years of teaching to, the, to God's people concerning the nation of Israel. It would not be fitting, one commentator, commentator writes, to leave the apostolic total short by one when that total was intentionally fixed by Jesus to correspond to the twelve tribes of Israel. And so we can understand Peter's motive. We can understand as we, as we try to understand that it was from Jerusalem and from the Jews that salvation goes forth. That Christianity has its, its birth within the soil of Judaism. And that us Gentiles, we Gentiles, were grafted into that same vine, that same olive tree that is Israel. We can understand Peter's thinking, but again, that doesn't make it right. Well, what about the casting of lots? What do we have to say for that? Maybe that is where they went wrong. What would you say if the elders presented to you some, some proposal for modifying the administration or the worship of the church, and we said we're going to do this by casting lots? You would probably think we had gone nuts. We, we don't do that anymore. In fact, we don't read of it being done after Pentecost. But what do we have to say with regard to the casting of lots within Old Testament Israel? Well, it was common practice, was it not? And even the Proverbs teach us that while the lot is cast into the lap, every decision is from the Lord. There's an interesting occasion 
in Luke chapter 1, and we have to remember Luke is the author of both of these books, where he tells us about Zacharias, the father of John, who was in Jerusalem according to his, his tribes or his family's appointed time of service. Now we have to go all the way back to 2 Chronicles chapter 24 to learn how 12 families of Levi were each assigned a month of service in the tabernacle. And we're told that Zacharias was of a particular family who was given the eighth month of the year. But then, in order to determine which of that family would actually go into the holy place to minister the table of showbread, to trim the menorah, and to refreshen the incense altar, lots were cast. By the way, knowing Zechariah's tribe, knowing the month that he served in the temple, if you're interested after the service, I can show you how this tells us when Jesus was born and it wasn't December. <laughs> but the casting of lots, that is if we assume that both Elizabeth and Mary had normal nine-month pregnancies, it's pretty easy from the scriptures to determine when in the year Jesus was born because of the way the Levitical system serviced the tabernacle and then the temple. Lots were cast and they were viewed as being the will of the Lord because of his sovereignty. That if they prayed and if they sought the Lord, then he would guide the decision through the casting of a lot. And it was nothing more than God manifesting his will to his people. So we really can't condemn that action, though we may and I think must note that after Pentecost, we don't hear of it again. So that leaves us with Paul. What about Paul? Well, we have to admit that nothing is heard again of Matthias for the rest of the scriptures. And really, even outside the biblical record, when we go to the history of the early church and the letters, we don't hear anything of Matthias either. Years ago, when we were living in Oklahoma City, we were visiting a town in northern Oklahoma called Guthrie, and there was a bookstore there, um, which is like a mecca. You know, any place you go, you got to find the bookstore. And there was this book called The Lives of the Apostles, and I bought it, and um, I, I pulled it off my shelf this week, and I looked at it, and sure enough, there are 12 apostles, and apostle number one is actually John, number two is Peter, number 12 is Paul. Matthias doesn't make many lists. I didn't Google um, because I, I questioned the, um, you know, the theological significance of Googling. So, uh, but I imagine Matthias would probably not make many lists there. How can Paul not be considered the true 12th apostle? Or are we dealing with that baker's dozen? You know, 13. But of course we know 13 is an unlucky number, so we can't have that. There's only 12. 12 tribes of Israel. Well, to answer the first complaint regarding the continued history of Matthias, we don't really have anything about most of the other apostles, do we? 
You know, we're gonna, if we're going to start disqualifying men from being apostles based on how much press they get after this chapter, then we're going to be left with a whole lot less than 12. We're going to have basically three. Peter, John, and then Paul. Get in here, we're running out. And so we really can't use that argument because it wasn't the purpose of the Holy Spirit to record a thorough history of what each of these men did. What they did was they went out and they bore witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of them, according to church tradition, suffered for it. We do know that James, the Great, as he was called, suffered under the hand of Herod and was killed, as martyred. We all already talked about lots, that we really can't say that the casting of lots was in anything wrong. In fact, the word for lot is the Greek kleros, from which we get the word clergy. And so the, the thought of being chosen and, and that choice somehow being manifested visibly, somehow, to the people of God is what led to the concept of clergy, which we do have in the church today. You know, Paul never claimed to be the twelfth, nor did he regularly associate with the other eleven, or the, which would be the other eleven in Jerusalem. He rarely went to Jerusalem, and most of the time when he was talking about the other apostles, rather than somehow join himself in that group, he, he separated himself as one who did not owe his apostleship to them, but rather received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul certainly would never have maintained that he was an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus from the time of John to that of the Ascension. He wasn't there. And so if the criteria of a witness is true, then Paul never, never claimed to have that criterion to be one of the twelve. Now this does not in any way diminish his apostleship. He defended his apostleship. Because the word apostle simply means sent one. And the authority of an apostle, an apostle is like an ambassador. The authority of an apostle depends on the one who sends him. And so do we have apostles in the church today? Yes, we do. We call them missionaries. They're sent out by the church. But the apostles of which we speak here in Acts and with Paul, are those who are sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself called in the book of Hebrews the chief apostle because he was sent by the Father. And so the authority and the rank of the apostle depends upon the one who is doing the immediate sending. And Paul spends much of his writing defending the fact that he was not sent by the eleven or the twelve in Jerusalem. He was sent by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So while he was no less of an apostle than the twelve, he was not numbered among the twelve. He himself, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when speaking of the risen Lord before the ascension, he says of Jesus, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me as well. He separates himself 
from the other apostles. He says, yes, Jesus appeared to all of the apostles in Jerusalem. And last of all, over here, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. And so just as with Peter, we should never say more than he says of himself, we should not do that with regard to Paul. Matthias was number 12. Matthias, we will someday meet, sitting on one of the thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Matthias was chosen as one who had been with the disciples from the beginning until the very end, the ascension of their Lord, and he was chosen to bear witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here is an interesting thought. It took 12 to witness to the Jews, and only one to witness to the Gentiles. Let us pray. Father, your ways are often mysterious to us, and that you invested so much responsibility to the Apostle Paul, and yet did not number him among the twelve. And you chose twelve to witness of your great act of salvation through Jesus Christ to the tribes of Israel, to your people Israel. Father, we do pray that you would guide our understanding as we read this account, this fifth gospel written by Luke, the continuation of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ now from heaven and not from earth. Through these twelve, primarily John and Peter, and also through the one untimely born, the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Father, for their eyewitness account that now gives us understanding and strengthens our faith to know that the things that we believe are indeed true. We ask your blessing, Father, on your word as it is in our lives, in our hearts, that it would find fertile soil and that it would grow and produce a, a harvest of glory to you for all of the angels to behold. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.